Good to uh, be with you today. Uh, Take your Bible, if you would, and open to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. Very famous passage, one that uh, you no doubt are familiar with. We're going to be looking today at uh, verses... 1 through 7. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come to you together today corporately. We are grateful that we get to do so. We are grateful that we have opportunity, that we have freedom, we have a place to be together, to sit under the teaching of your word, to worship you in song fellowship with one another, to pray together, and to celebrate your table. Father, I pray that you would minister to us this morning as we look at your holiness and what that means for us. We are familiar with this passage. We're familiar with these words. May they not become commonplace to us. Pray that you would minister to us now from your word, by your spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. As I was meditating on uh, last week's sermon and uh, thinking about the fear of the Lord and what that means and what that looks like, I was kind of struck with that notion that we should be struck with, and I was thinking about it throughout the course of the week and And as I was doing so, a question kept coming into my mind and uh, over and over again. Why is the fear of the Lord so important for us? Why is it so important? And of course, the immediate answer is not, not far away from us. The answer that came to mind right off the bat is the Bible says so, right? But further questions came to mind also. Why? Is it so important? Why does the Bible command us to fear the Lord? Why does the Bible speak so highly of the fear of the Lord? What is it about the Lord or about us that makes having a proper fear of God the best thing possible for us? More than that, how can we come to fear the Lord? Those are questions that kept coming up in my mind as I was meditating on last week's message and thinking about what to preach for this week. And so this passage about the holiness of God and this vision, this uh, what, what Isaiah sees, is a powerful message for us that I think uh, explains and answers some of those questions. And so we see right off the bat in Isaiah 6 verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah had 
this vision. And so maybe you're like me and, and uh, not always uh, have it at ready recall all of the history of all of the kings of, of Israel and of Judah. And so let's turn in our Bibles uh, to Second Chronicles 26. And in Second Chronicles 26, we hear, uh, read about Uzziah and about his uh, life and about his reign and all of those things. And so, Second uh, Chronicles 26, that whole chapter is, uh, is really about him. And we learn some fascinating things uh, about him. First of all, he became king when he was 16. And then he reigned 52 years. That's a, that's a significant administration. <laughs> 52 years in office. So he's king at 16. He reigned 52 years. He was very strong militarily. Uh, very impressive, uh, the accomplishments and, and all of that. Um, and mostly, for the most part in his life, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He sought the Lord. He was a good king. He was a good king. And so even just with that, you can kind of get the idea by Isaiah's opening words that this is a momentous time when he saw this vision. In the year that that king died, I saw this vision. And so King Uzziah was, was uh, powerful and he reigned for a long time and he's a noteworthy, a memorable king. But there's more to his life than just those things. If we read... Uh, verse 5, for example, verse 5 of Second uh, Chronicles 26, he set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of the Lord, in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Right? So you have a strong indication about his own life, his own seeking of the Lord. I think it's fascinating here that you have uh, the days of Zechariah, who is teaching him to fear God. That even the king had someone instructing him, had someone teaching him what it means to walk with God, right? And so he was made strong all of those uh, years as he sought the Lord, right? And if you go down to uh, verse 15, the second half of verse 15, the, the intervening paragraph there spells out the, the details of his accomplishments and, and what kind of king he was and all of that. And his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped Till he was strong. God helped him and God made him strong and, and he sought the Lord and this was, uh, this was what happened in his life. But then we continue reading in verse 16, but when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord. And Uzziah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand, to burn incense. And when he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him. And behold, he was leprous in his forehead. And they rushed him out quickly. And he himself hurried to go out because the Lord had struck him. King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. And being a leper, lived in a separate house. For he was excluded from the house of the Lord. And Jotham, his son, was over the king's household, governing the people of the land. So Uzziah was strengthened. And as he grew strong, he also grew proud. And he took upon himself the chance to go right into the temple, to the altar of incense and burn incense. Something reserved for the priests. So he was a great man, but he wasn't a priest. He was a great king, but he didn't have the right to enter into the temple like that, to burn incense, to, to go where he was not supposed to go, where only those who've been consecrated to that service could go. And so he goes, and, and I think it's fascinating that you see this whole train of, of priests come after him, men of valor. So these, you know, you think of priests and 
I don't know if you think of men of valor, but these men were priests who were men of valor. They were, they were ready to take up arms, right? You shouldn't be here. You shouldn't be doing this. And he gets so mad when they tell him to stop. He gets leprosy. The Lord strikes him with leprosy in his face. Right there in that holy place, standing amongst holy people, in a place that has been set aside, has been consecrated to worship God. And here is a man who shouldn't be there in the first place, and now he's got leprosy. And if you remember the law, leprosy would keep you out of the temple. You couldn't even come as a worshiper into the temple. And here, he's entered right into the holy place. He's not supposed to be there. And now he's struck with leprosy, and he ends up being driven out. And, of course, he's anxious to get out of there as well. It's clear to him the Lord did this. And what happens to Uzziah for the rest of his life? He's exiled. He no longer has access, even as a worshiper, to the temple. He's blocked. He's out. He spends the rest of his days living separately as a leper, unclean, not having access to the temple. Uzziah had taken upon himself prerogatives that weren't his. He was not consecrated to that task, and yet that's what he ended up doing, and that's what ended up ultimately leading to his death. And so we see his life would had, had such promise, but then we see his pride that comes with that, and then how that resulted in him uh, finally being banished, being sent away from the temple. And I think that background, more than just the emotional background that this man Isaiah had ministered to, this man who was king and had been king for a very long time, who had such reputation, who was such a man of God, it was, it was more than Isaiah saying, yeah, it was in the year that he died, that great king, and our hearts were all, you know, weeping for him. No, that, I don't think that was the message. He points to Uzziah and his death as an illustration, as the backdrop that helps us to understand what's going to follow in this passage. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. So this prophetic vision that Isaiah has is of the Lord himself seated upon a throne. And this is the word Lord, meaning Adonai, ruler, the supreme one, the one who is in charge, the most exalted that's the word that is the used here. The one who is absolutely sovereign in this situation, in all situations. This is his position. This is his title. I saw the Lord. By the way, when you flip to the New Testament, you read about this vision in the New Testament. It's pointed out to us that this is Jesus. Who is the Lord being seen? It's the pre-incarnate Christ. This is the Son of God being seen in this picture. And he is that Lord. He is in that position. And so just by that word, Lord, I saw the Lord. We've already entered into a special place, into a special prophetic vision. I saw the Lord. And what was he doing? He was sitting upon a throne. He was at his seat of power. He was enthroned. He was sitting there in charge of all things. And there he is, seated in that place, it's located in the temple to, to indicate that he's sovereign over all of creation. Remember King Uzziah, he had a throne, and he was a good king, and he was a sovereign. He wasn't a sovereign in the temple. The Lord is sovereign over all things and in the temple. And it says he was sitting upon a throne, he was high and lifted up, he's exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The, the garment that he wore was so, was so expansive, so extensive as an indicator of his glory. And it was, his glory was so massive that it filled the whole room. It wasn't just a really big 
train. It wasn't just a really long robe or something that, that you know, trailed 10 feet or 20 feet or, or something like that. It actually filled everything. And that's the extent of His glory. And so we have this vision of the Lord and who He is and where He's seated and, and what, he's, what He's wearing. This is to communicate to us His glory. is unparalleled. It fills all things. It's not just relegated to outside the temple, nor is it just relegated to inside the temple. His glory fills all things. So even if we just stop the vision right here, and if, if Isaiah just you know, said the end, this would be massive. This is God. Seated upon His throne. His glory being pictured in such an extensive way. You know, I, I think about uh, when, when I share the gospel with people. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll be talking with someone who is not a Christian, and I talk about God, and they are just as happy as they can be to talk about God. And, and God is not a scary notion, or God is not a, a something that, that is really profound in their mind. It's usually some vague notion of a, the force or... You know, the grandpa in the sky or something like that. That's not the God of the Bible. Just the image, just this vision that Isaiah has right here of the Lord puts to shame any secular, any non-Christian perspective or view or idea of who God is and what He's like. This is the one who rules all things. There is no one and nothing that can compare with His glory. And then we see the seraphim. Above Him stood the seraphim, which means something like burning ones or whatever. Maybe they were very bright and shiny or, or something, I don't know. But above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. And you remember trying to picture uh, six wings and how one angel and has six wings. And I don't, I don't know exactly, but with two, he covered his face. Right? He, he, he had wings covering his face, lest he see and behold the glory of God unprotected, unfiltered. He's, he's, he's protecting himself. He's covering his eyes, lest he see that. And then he's covering his feet as well, lest his feet be seen by that glorious one. We always, I say we always, that's a little bit too broad. We usually cover our feet, right? They're not the most uh, wonderful you know, part of us to look at, you know. We, we, and we walk on them. And, you know, when my kids go outside and, and uh, you know, play in the dirt barefoot, I think that's great. But then the problem becomes when they go inside, they just wear those same, you know, feet with dirt inside. And, and you may as well have, you know, just tracked mud in any old way, right? They get dirty when we walk on them. And there's, it seems to be like this is the notion that these, these seraphim don't want the Lord to see their feet. They're covered. They're, they're, they're guarded. Like, don't, don't, look, don't look at my feet. Maybe that's part of the image here. And then with two wings, they flew. So they're always in service. They're, they're, being, they're being protected. They're, they're, they're having eyes covered and feet covered. doesn't mean they're not doing anything because they're still flying. They're still active in service. They're still serving the Lord God. But you've got this image of these seraphim. But it's, it's, it's less the description of what they look like and more the description of what they're saying that has the power in this passage. One called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is is full of His glory. Holy, holy, holy. Can you imagine? You've got these, these seraphim, these angelic beings, and they're shouting back and forth at one another. And this is what they're shouting. In, the, in Hebrew language, if you want to make something a superlative, or if you want to emphasize something, if you want to emphasize it, you repeat it. All right? You, you think of... Uh, of times in the New Testament when Jesus might say, truly, truly, I say to you. He's emphasizing it. He's, he's, he's saying this is, this is indeed so. Well, if you want to make something the superlative, the highest it can be, repeat it three times. And so here you have these seraphim, these angelic beings, and they're shouting at one another, 
God is the holiest. Holy, holy, holy. There is none like Him. He is the most holy one. The Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. So we're getting a picture of of this Lord and what He's like, that His power and His glory and His holiness is incomparable. It's incomprehensible. And so they're shouting back and forth, uh, back and forth at one another, and they're they're talking about what the Lord is like. It's like they're singing. It's like they're they're praising Him. It's like they're announcing to each other and to the whole world, confirming that what indeed He is like. He is holy, holy, holy. And this is this is part of the alarming realization because that might be a beautiful thing to think about. If you sanitize it a little bit, if you make it small, you turn down the volume. When uh, my wife and I like to watch movies, and uh, but we don't usually like to go to the theater. It didn't bother me when I was, you know, younger, but now it seems like it's just too loud in there, right? I want to go home and watch it on a controlled environment where I can turn down the volume to something that I like, right? If we do that with this vision, we lose it. If we put it onto a small screen, if we shrink it down to something that we can control, which is what I like to do with with movies, if I turn the volume down to something that I can handle, it doesn't disturb me. If we do that with this vision, we lose it. We lose it entirely. This is a startling and alarming realization that he has. The foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. So these angelic beings, that if we were to see angelic beings, we would be tempted to fall down before them, either as dead men, having passed out, or tempted to worship them, as we read again and again in the Bible. They're, they're that much more glorious than us. They're that much higher than us and more powerful and more beautiful. And those beings that, that, that would cause us to to, to pass out, those beings, yet they cover their face in the presence of God and they cover their feet in the presence of God. When they think of God, He is that much and more greater than them. And so you've got this image of, of these wonderful beings. And how, how powerful are they? Well, they're, they're not some, you know, wimpy... Uh, you know, beautiful figure or something like that. The voice is so loud, it shakes the whole place. Just their worship, just their crying out to one another, holy, 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 shakes the whole place. And those are just the angels. Are we getting a picture that's, that's, that's not shrunk down to a smaller screen with a lower volume that we can control? This is massive. This is so grand. This is so enormous and so wonderful. We're going to see that Isaiah has a tough time taking it all in. Not only did the place shake, but the house was filled with smoke. The house was filled with smoke. Smoke carries with it various uh, uh, ideas in, um, in the Old Testament. But I think what's going on here is conveying that even the image that Isaiah is seeing, that we're going to see, it, it almost undoes him. Even that image is, is a little bit blurred or a little bit incomplete. There's smoke. There's some of it. There's some of, some of God's presence and some of what's going on that he can't quite put his finger on. There's mystery there. So what he sees is enough to undo him. And there's more than what he sees. But it's, it's hidden. It's veiled by smoke. This is a glorious, glorious scene. But we're going to see that it's extremely alarming to him. Look at the effects on Isaiah. I said, verse 5, Woe is me. Woe is me. I'm about to die. I am undone. This is too much for me. This is, this is too grand. I can't, my, 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 
the circuits are all melting down. I can't do this. I can't take it. Woe is me. God is so glorious. God is so powerful. God is so holy. I'm about to melt. I'm about to die. Woe is me. For I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. In looking at the Lord and seeing Him in this vision and seeing all that's going on and understanding the imagery and that, that even this great and enormous scene that he sees is, is actually a veiled representation of what really is there. Having seen that, he's made immediately aware of his own sin. And not just aware that he has sinned. This is an awareness of his sin and how dire and defensive it is. How, how hateful to God is our sin. He didn't just say, yeah, I really need to kind of clean up my life. He sees this vision and he says, woe is me. I am undone. I'm unmade. I'm about to be destroyed. I deserve to be destroyed. And why? Because I, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. I don't want to go too much into what all is involved in that. I think it has uh, less to do with something like cussing or swearing. And it has more to do with taking the Lord's name in vain and all that's connected with that. And I don't, I don't mean just saying certain words. I mean, there's, a, there's an aspect in Isaiah where the people honored God with their lips and they belied the entire a confession with their life. They were lying. Saying they were honoring God. Saying the right things when in fact they weren't believing them. They didn't obey them. I think that's kind of what's going on here. Because Isaiah's ministry is going to point that out again and again. And I think Isaiah is saying, we have a serious sin problem in my culture. And in some ways I, I partake in it. Now, this is Isaiah the prophet. Was there a holier man walking around the earth? I think probably there was not a single holier man than, than Isaiah alive in the world at this time. That if, if we were to be in Isaiah's presence, we probably wouldn't like it all that much because he was that holy. I mean, he, he, he's a man, but what a man. But regardless of how holy he was or wasn't, regardless of what you and I may have thought of his holiness, when he's confronted with this vision, he's made aware, I have sin. I have sin. Like the people around me that I'm ministering to, I have sin. I am undone. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When he's confronted, when he, when he catches this glimpse, when he sees this vision of the Lord on his throne, he doesn't just close his Bible and walk away. He doesn't just say, oh, well, that was interesting, and then go about his day. This shakes him to his core. That's the kind of scene that we see here. One of the effects on Isaiah is a true knowledge of God. He is seeing and getting an accurate picture of what God is really like in His power, in His glory, in His holiness, in just how much He deserves my obedience from the heart. He's getting an accurate picture of who God really is. Though it's, it's, there's still smoke, there's still mystery, there's still, he, 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 of course, our finite mind cannot grasp entirely the infinite God. That math doesn't work. There's still mystery. But yet what he has comprehended, what he has seen, is enough to undo him. He's received a true knowledge of God. And in that same time, he receives a true knowledge of himself. He realizes that's who God is. 
Uh-oh. What about me? I'm undone. Woe is me. I have sin. I have the sin of my people. He can't hide it. He, he, he's in the presence of God Almighty. And so that leads him to a true confession of sin. He, he just lays it out. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. There's no point in him hiding his sin. He just, he just spills out, this is my sin. I deserve death. And there's a point of application here before we move on. Something to, uh, to keep in mind, only when we truly see who God is do we truly see our own sin for what it is. Only when we truly see who God is, when we have a clear understanding in our mind of of what He is like, of His standard, of His perfection, of His glory, of His beauty, of His power, of His authority over all things. Only then do we have an accurate understanding of ourselves and what our sin really is. Anarchy against God. Rebellion against God. Hatred of God. Preference of God's enemies over God. It's hateful. It's hateful. This is what Isaiah sees. But it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. Having made this great confession, having lamented his own sinful state, we, we read in, in the next verse, verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. What a, what a gracious salvation God brings to him. It's provided by God. There weren't instructions given to Isaiah. Well, here's what you can do. Look, there's an altar over there. Go and do this thing. Go and offer this sacrifice. Go and apply it in some way. Go and make it happen. It's brought to him by the seraph. And I always, uh, I don't know if this is exactly what Isaiah intends, but it always strikes me that this glorious angelic being who is in the presence of God himself, when he goes to pick up this coal, uses tongs. You know, what, how tough must his hands have been? When I did road construction uh, way back in the day, you know, your hands after working uh, with hot stuff and, and working a lot, they get really tough. Actually, the same thing happened on work at Starbucks, and I wasn't working with all that tough stuff. <laughs> but you, can, you get used to heat. It's not a big deal. And I remember, uh, you know, after working there for several months, I could grab things that would have caused blisters months before. Your hands get tough, right? You can, you can just kind of, um, you, you, you toughen up. And here is this angelic being. There is no one tougher. Why didn't you just grab the, the, the burning coal? Well, he used tongs. And so I, I don't know. I'm not saying this is exactly what that means, but it strikes me the, the heat, what, what, what is in that burning coal that would cause him to use tongs instead of his hand. Now, it also might be that he just, you know, as he didn't want to show his feet, that he didn't want to, you know, to sully a, a, an offering or the burning coal by using his hand. That, that's possible too. But I'm always struck with the idea of something being so hot that an angel has to use tongs to grab it. But nevertheless, this, this provision, this, this salvation that's going to come to him comes at, at the hands of a seraph, brings it to him. It is, it is, it is God, we, we assume here, it is God who dispatches the seraph to meet his need his sin need that he has. and He's got in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from, uh, with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth. Isaiah, when he had seen this vision, he said, Woe is me, for I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And the coal is brought and is placed on his lips to bring salvation, to bring Redemption to bring God's work in that very place of sin. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. 
Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. I want to notice that it's applied right to the place of sin. Not generally. It wasn't some general sprinkling of His body or or something like that. This is very clear that it's specifically applied to that place where Isaiah and his people had sin. It was applied to that sin, and what does it do? Well, of course it would be searing. If you can imagine that hot coal being, you know, that the angel is holding with tongs, he then holds to your mouth. Such a sensitive part of your body. And searing, burning, applied to that exact place. And it doesn't talk about uh, pain of it or something like that, but he touches him. He touches his mouth. He says, this has touched your lips. The result is your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. The guilt that you have for your sin is real. He doesn't, the seraph doesn't come and say, you know, that's okay. That's okay. That, that sin, you know, I know for a minute it seemed like it was really bad and like you were going to die. You're not going to die. It's okay. That sin's not that big of a deal. That's not what the seraph does. The seraph doesn't diminish his view of the sin. The gravity, the magnitude, the, the horror and the, and the darkness of that sin. Instead, he addresses it. And he applies that coal from the offering directly to the place of sin. Your guilt is not lessened. Your guilt is taken away. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin is atoned for. Can you imagine what Isaiah must have felt at that time? That just seconds before having had this vision, his brain nearly explodes and he's so aware of his guilt that, that he, he, he's about ready to, to keel over. And to have a seraph approach him, what's going to happen now? He's got something in his hand. Is he going to hit me with it? Is he going to, you know, I, I don't know. But then to hear that statement after the offering, the sacrifice has been applied to the very place of sin to say, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Period. What he must have felt. Well, I think about I think about us. Of course, this is this is pointing forward to the great sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice of Jesus' own body giving himself for us. This is pointing forward to to the, the application of that atoning work to the life of the believer, not to the lips only, but to the whole body really, to the the person being atoned for. It's pointing forward to Christ Himself. And, and, and I wonder, I wonder about whether you've seen, not, not with your eyes, ha- have you had this kind of understanding, been made aware of what God is really like? What God Himself is really like? In such a way that you would be become aware of your own sin, that you would begin to hate your own sin, that you would that you would recognize it for what it is, and 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 you would cry, "Woe is me, for I'm undone. I'm a man of sin, and I live among a people of sin." Have you come to that place where where you've been undone in understanding who God really is, or do you still have in mind that God's kind of okay with sin? And sure, we're all human. And, uh, and so, of course, we're going to do those sorts of things. Maybe God grades on a curve. And, and, and good people He lets into heaven. Good people He forgives. Or, or do you have some vision, some view, some understanding of God that's like that? We all need an understanding of God that is like this one. Where we see that His holiness is perfect and unmatched. That He is spotless. That sin cannot remain in His presence. Not, not even just a little sin. Not even just a, you know, just a, a kind of a mixture. You know, it's not really bad sin. It's, it's not like this other kind of sin, which is always worse. 
sin cannot remain in his presence. He's that holy. And he's all-powerful. You have a, a vision of God that is like that, whose, whose, whose glory is infinite, spreads to the end of the earth, whose, whose, whose authority, whose position and sovereignty as the one seated on the throne extends to all people in all times. And he is that holy and he is that righteous. Do you have that view of God? If you've never had that view, if you, if you don't think in those terms, if in your mind God is you know, brought down to a smaller screen where you can turn the volume down, my goal is to remove that small screen. My, my, my desire is that we would all have that vision, that we would have this understanding like Isaiah does, what he's seeking to communicate to us here of God and all his grandeur and all of his glory and all of his holiness and what that means for us, that we would become aware, like Isaiah, woe is me. Because when that happens, when that happens, when you come to the end of yourself, realizing that in a battle with this God, you are not going to win. In, a, in an effort to please this God by your effort, you, you cannot accomplish that. When you realize that, when you, when you see what he is like and what you really are, at that point, redemption can come in. This atoning work, this sacrifice, that here is pictured as, a, as, as the altar and the, and the coal that comes from it, which really is ultimately accomplished in Christ himself, who, who took on flesh, became one of us, and, and was holy like his Father remained holy as we see the image of him here while he was walking in the flesh on this earth and then gave himself as that sacrifice. Not on an altar like is pictured here, but on a cross, giving himself for us. Doing so, dying for our sin, not for his, having lived a holy life where, where we've not, that atonement can be brought in. My desire is that you would have this understanding of, of who God is and what He is really like and that you would come to an awareness of who you really are and that you would cry out to Him, realizing that the only salvation that happens here is not by Isaiah cleaning himself up or running away, but it's by the seraph applying that atoning sacrifice to the sin. Some of you need that atoning sacrifice applied to you. Some of you need to trust in Christ. You need to, you need to respond to this, this greater understanding of who God is and what He's really like. Not by pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Not by ignoring that reality. Not by trying to close that book and move on to something different and more, and more you know, gentle. But by responding, uh-oh. If God is that holy and He is and more, I need atonement. So my, my desire, my exhortation is that you would trust in Christ. That you would look to Him realizing salvation only comes from Him. It's not going to come from anywhere else. This sin guilt that, that, you've, that you've become aware of is real and His payment is more than adequate. That you would trust in Him, that you would uh, hear those words applied to you. This has touched your lips. This has touched your life. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for by Christ. It's important for us to remember before we leave this point here, it's important for us to remember that nowhere is God lowered so that we can access Him. Nowhere is our sin lessened so that we can access Him. Nowhere is the guilt downplayed. The, the sin is real. The guilt is real and it's deadly. And we dare not play down the extent and the effectiveness of the sacrifice given. That this coal is brought in and brings redemption to Isaiah. Christ is so glorious that he does not lessen God in order to make us acceptable to him. He, he does not lessen our sin to make us more acceptable to God. 
He comes and and addresses our legitimate and real guilt before the most glorious and holy of all beings, God Himself. He addresses both of those fully. And He Himself, in His own sacrifice, provides redemption. And we come to the Lord's Supper, which is us celebrating these same facts, these same things, this same salvation that's brought to us. And if you're, if you're one on the outside... Maybe you've, you've never really thought about God in these terms before and you're not really sure you believe it or you're not quite sure what this is all about or, or you just don't believe in Him. Please don't take the elements. They're not for you. When you trust in Christ, they'll be for you. This is, this is for those of us who realize I am acceptable to God entirely because of what Jesus has done. It wasn't merit of my own. I didn't... I I wasn't smarter than the next guy. I wasn't more spiritual than the next guy. The only way I am acceptable to God is because of what Jesus Christ has done and I get to be included in Him by faith. So we come to the Lord's Supper. First we come to the bread. Reflecting on these truths in the New Testament, this This bread, which is not a burning coal, but in a sense it is. It represents for us the body of Christ that He gave for us, that He sacrificed Himself for us to redeem us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. What, why, why do we need this? It's because of our sin. And as we take this, it's important for us to, to think about the fact that the sin in my life was not just once upon a time. I still have sin that crops up. I still have ways I rebel against God in my own life. And the body of Christ suffices to pay for that sin as well. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you showed Isaiah these things, and we are so grateful that you have sent your Son, who is that sacrifice, who redeems sinners, who takes away sin guilt, paying it fully and removes it from us. Jesus did so in giving up his own body which He offered on the tree for us. Father, as we partake now, we give glory to Jesus for His body given for us. We pray in His name. Amen. Jesus said, This is My body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Next, we come to the cup. Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 11. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Let's pray. Father, as we hold in our hand the cup, pointing us to the blood of Christ, by which he instituted a new covenant in his own blood, We recognize our need for forgiveness. We recognize that in Jesus, that forgiveness is ours by virtue of Him giving His body and giving His blood. So that in this new covenant, we stand before you righteous and holy in your sight because we are in Jesus who is righteous and holy. We thank you for the blood of Christ spilt for us to institute this new covenant by which we have right relationship with you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus said, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.
Paul, Paul concludes, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till He comes. What a beautiful passage. What a beautiful picture that Isaiah saw. Seeing the Lord seated upon His throne and being so struck. My desire is that we would go from here and not be able to just close the book. Not be able to turn down the volume or shrink it down to a screen of manageable size. But that we would go away in light of this vision that Isaiah had of who God really is. And that we would rejoice that though we were in that place crying out, Woe is me. I am undone because of my sin. That we would go forth giving glory to Jesus. That in Him, we have been made right with God. Let's pray. Father, thank You for these words. Thank You that You communicated Yourself so powerfully and clearly to Isaiah in his day in the year that King Uzziah died, and that we have your word in front of us now by which you communicate clearly to us in the power of your Spirit. Father, I pray that we would go away struck by who you are, struck by the privilege, the glorious, comforting, empowering privilege of being rightly related to such a God through Jesus and His sacrifice. I pray for Your blessing as we go. May we take these truths to the dying world around us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the first Sunday of the month, and we normally take an offering for our benevolence. There's a box in the back of the room here. There's a, a tray in the uh, um, in the foyer. I forgot the word. <laughs> in the foyer that you can put a gift there. This is to help out people who have come to us with um, maybe struggling to pay bills or buy food. It's to it's to help uh, mainly people in the body. Uh, but others as well. So you have an opportunity to do that. There will be a family up here to pray with you who would love to minister to you in that way. God bless you all, and you are dismissed.